Kid Review Print Speaking to the Blind, celebrating 40 years of audio newspaper production. Welcome to this week's edition of the Herald Scotland podcast, recorded at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre by our amazing volunteers. You can get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter or Instagram using at TuneReview, that is at symbol C-U-E-A-N-E-R-E-V-I-E-W. You can also contact us directly by emailing information at tunereview.com. That is I-N-F-O-R-M-A-T-I-O-N at symbol C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W dot C-O-M or by calling 0141 772 That's 0141 772 This is from the Herald Scotland of Wednesday, the 12th of April, 2023, from the Voices section. Faulty part delays return of CalMac ferry sidelined for four months. This article is by Martin Williams. The supply of a faulty part has put back the return of one of CalMac's major ferries, MV Caledonian Isles, after four months on the sidelines. It had been hoped that the 30-year-old vessel would be back in full service in February to serve one of the west coast of Scotland's busiest routes to and from Brodick on Arran and and a series of setbacks has delayed a return. User groups have been told by CalMac that as a result of an equipment manufacturer supplying a faulty elastic shaft coupling, the completion of repair works has been delayed yet again. The vessel was originally withdrawn in early January and was in dry dock for nearly a month, with more than £1 million of scheduled work being done on the vessel, including engine servicing. But inspections uncovered further issues, including damage to both engines, with the estimate for a return at three to five weeks. MV Isle of Arran has been serving Arran for weeks on its own because of the issues with Caledonian Isles and MV Hebridean Isles, cutting the number of available vehicle spaces to about half. In February, CalMac said Caledonian Isles would remain sidelined till at least March the 1st, following continuing concerns with its main engines. By the end of February, it was confirmed that it would be out till March the 31st at least. More recently, it was said the vessel which carries a 1,000 passengers and 110 cars would return on Thursday. That was then amended to Saturday. CalMac have told local ferry users that repairs and sea trials are now due to be completed by Sunday and a one-day phased return is planned for Monday before returning to full service next Tuesday. But it means that CalMac will have to cancel bookings this weekend as MV Isle of Arran, which can only carry 48 passengers and 76 cars, will operate a one-vessel service for longer than expected. MV Isle of Arran is due to operate services to and from Isla as a second vessel from next Wednesday, but it means the second vessel services will be cancelled on Sunday, Monday and Tuesday. One ferry user group official said, It might be seen as churlish not to recognise there is light at the end of this very long tunnel, although we have been here before only to find that something else has gone wrong. 
But to wait all these months for this ferry to return is clearly unacceptable and just adds more farce to an already farcical scenario with our ferries. The new transport minister must be tearing his hair out over these continual issues. Cal Mack told a user group, As a result of an equipment manufacturer supplying a faulty part, highly elastic shaft coupling, for the repair to MV Caledonian Isles, the completion of repair work will be delayed and the vessel will now not be able to return to service on April 15th, as previously announced. We held this part in stock to avoid potential months-long delays caused by the lengthy lead times to receive a new one from order. This part connects the engine output shaft to the gearbox input shaft and ensures there is no torsional vibrations transferred between the engine and gearbox and manages any small misalignment, preventing damage to either. Following completion of engine trials, and as the vessel has been off service since early January, there is a need for additional operational testing of ancillary systems, including ramps, mezzanine decks, mooring equipment and other services to ensure the vessel is fully ready for service. Although all such systems have been maintained during the off-service period, including testing as applicable, only live use at an operational intensity can provide the necessary assurance that such systems have not suffered during the inactive period and are fully ready for use. This additional measure is intended to reduce the risk of an in-service failure of operationally critical equipment, which would have a negative effect on service. A phased return to service on Monday, April 17, may allow MV Caledonian Isles to provide some unscheduled additional services to assist MV Isle of Arran on the Ardrossan-Brodock route, while these necessary checks are undertaken. This is from the Herald Scotland of Wednesday, the 12th of April, 2023, from the Voices section. Joe Biden in Ireland and Scotland's stake in the Good Friday Agreement. This article is by Kevin McKenna. An anecdote related by Alex Salmond in 2014 on the eve of the referendum on Scottish independence still resonates. Yet it doesn't concern Scotland. Rather, it was a warm remnant from the febrile and intoxicating days immediately before and after the signing of the Good Friday Peace Accord. News of the death of the Reverend Dr. Ian Paisley had just broken as Mr. Salmond embarked on a helicopter tour of the north of Scotland during a final push for independence. The former First Minister of Scotland was fond of Big Ian, and it was clear that he regarded this giant of Northern Ireland politics with a degree of affection. I remember when I first realised that both he and Martin McGuinness could work together and bring peace, recalled Mr Salmond, on a trip to Northern Ireland not long after the elections which put them both in government, we were all on an outing and Big Ian slipped. Martin McGuinness instinctively grabbed him and stopped him from falling. It was an act of simple humanity from one human being to another, but it told me that these two men who became friends could work together. 
Throughout the three decades of suffering and hurt brought on by the civil war in Northern Ireland, armchair experts on the British mainland cast their judgments on who was responsible and offered solutions born of ignorance and no little condescension. When peace came, uncertain and fragile, though it might immediately prove to be, we walked away and, from a safe distance, began loudly fretting about other conflagrations. As President Joe Biden flew into Belfast to mark the 25th anniversary of the signing of the Good Friday Agreement, some politicians across the UK will offer a silent prayer of gratitude that the troubles never really migrated here. Professor Sir Tom Devine has studied the interactions between Ireland and Scotland throughout his academic career and believes that Scotland has an important stake in the Good Friday Agreement. We live in close proximity to Northern Ireland, and the emotions, faith and history that still influences many people in west-central Scotland originate there. Sir Tom said, It's often said that Scotland didn't play a significant part in the Troubles. This is a myth. Firstly, Scotland was an active front for the IRA, and for the UDA and UVF, not militarily, but in fundraising, gun-running, and provision of safe houses. Throughout the 1970s, there was concern in Scotland and the UK that, given the close association of both countries and the perception that Glasgow had experienced the same societal fissures, there was anxiety that the troubles would cross over to here. He cites two bomb attacks in 1979 on known Irish pubs in Glasgow carried out by Ulster terror groups. Only a few people in one of the bars were injured, but the attack sparked fears that sectarian terror would erupt in Scotland. The political and civic authorities waited nervously to see if the IRA Council would respond in kind. That this never happened according to Sir Tom, is due to several factors. Glasgow was not Belfast, he said. Despite sectarian tension, Scotland didn't have anything like the same depth of social division between Protestants and Catholics that existed in Northern Ireland, where Catholics had been subject to political gerrymandering for generations. In Scotland in the 1970s and 1980s, the age-old job discrimination suffered by Catholics were beginning to die out. Moreover, the most influential church and community leaders, including the Grand Orange Lodge of Scotland, were determined to prevent any transfer of conflict. The Scottish police had also become effective after the 1979 pub bombings in dealing with the problems of sectarian terrorism in Scotland. Sir Tom also points to a startling revelation contained in the 2019 book Thatcher's Spy by the MI5 super agent Willie Carlin, who died earlier this year. Mr. Carlin had become close to Martin McGuinness after infiltrating the IRA. Carlin reported in his book that he raised the issue of non-aggression in Scotland with McGuinness. According to the spy, this was less of an official policy than an emotional response. Carlin recalls McGuinness saying, They, the Scots, are our Celtic cousins. 
disenfranchised just the same as the Irish. The English took away their language and killed off their culture, so it's more of a principle than a policy. After all, there are Celtic nations just like the Irish, except they haven't got the balls like we have to fight for self-determination. This is the first substantive evidence I know of reason on why Troubles didn't cross the Irish Sea, despite having many of the ingredients. Meanwhile, in Northern Ireland this week, Joe Biden will paint a picture of hope and optimism in pastel shades. Gail Walker, former editor of the Belfast Telegraph and a leading political commentator in Northern Ireland, believes, though, that the reality of the post-Good Friday era in Northern Ireland will probably be glossed over. The President will bring the usual caravan with him of people who only dip in and out of Northern Ireland politics for big-ticket events like this, she said. He'll convey a sort of boosterism built on hope and optimism, but the reality on the ground is different. The Stormont Assembly has been absent for about 40% of its entire existence between the current DUP Brexit standoff and, prior to that, a three-year Sinn Féin hiatus. As a result of this executive dysfunctionality, the issues that affect ordinary people's lives, such as NHS reforms, educational underachievement in working-class areas, and, during COVID, some of the worst infection rates in Europe. Working-class communities are not seeing the ceasefire dividend as much as people in middle-class areas. After 25 years, we should be talking about the archaeology of the Troubles, but they're still very real. Nothing has been done to heal the old wounds. Housing and education remains largely segregated. We need to wake up, as we have a long way to go in terms of caring for victims of the Troubles. There's been no serious attempt to effect reconciliation and no dismantling of the old tribal totems. The President will spend most of his visit to Ireland in the South, where he'll hope that picture opportunities in his ancestral homeland will elicit votes if he decides to seek the Democratic nomination once more. The caravan will follow him south and leave Northern Ireland and its wounded communities for another quarter of a century. This is from the Herald Scotland of Wednesday, the 12th of April, 2023, from the Voices section. SNP finance woes deepen as auditors leave parties Westminster Group. This article is by Tom Gordon. The SNP's financial problems have spread to its 1.5 million a year Westminster Group, with the departure of the same auditors who walked away from the party's headquarters. The MPs group has yet to appoint new auditors, despite a looming legal deadline. It emerged this week that Johnson Carmichael had quit as the SNP's financial overseas last September amid a police investigation, a fact that was hidden from the public until last week. Humza Yousaf said even he didn't know about the resignation until he was briefed upon becoming SNP leader in late March. The development was only made public on April 7th. It is understood the SNP's ruling body, the National Executive Committee, was also kept in the dark. 
Johnson Carmichael had signed off the SNP's accounts for more than a decade, including the latest set for 2021, showing income of $4.5 million. The firm quit, citing a review of our client portfolio and existing resources and commitments. The First Minister said on Tuesday that the chartered accountants had resigned around last October, but it is understood that they actually gave notice in September. The Herald can now reveal that Johnson Carmichael also stopped acting as auditors for the SNP's Westminster Group around the same time. Again, the SNP did not publicise the exit. At the time, the treasurer of the SNP Westminster Group was Glenrothes MP Peter Grant, and the second officer was then group leader Ian Blackford. New Westminster leader Stephen Flynn now faces questions about what he knew about a lack of auditors when he replaced Mr Blackford in December. The SNP Westminster Group is the party's second largest accounting unit and helps run research and staffing budgets for its 45 MPs at the Commons. It is it regularly has an income of more than 1 million a year, most of it from so-called short money, which is given to opposition parties by the Parliament and so requires its own audit. Like the Central Party, it has a legal duty to file its account for 2022 with the Electoral Commission by July 7th, or it could be fined. Mr Yousaf has admitted that hitting the deadline will be challenging. The departure of the auditors came amid a long-running police investigation into the SNP's finances after claims of potential fraud. Police Scotland launched Operation Branch Form in July 2021 after complaints that £660,000 raised specifically for a second referendum campaign may have been spent on other things. Last week, officers arrested and questioned former Chief Executive Peter Murrell, the husband of Nicola Sturgeon, before releasing him without charge. The police also searched the couple's Glasgow home and seized a luxury 110,000 motorhome from outside the house of Mr Murrell's widowed 92-year-old mother in Fife. The SNP said Johnson Carmichael informed the party in September that they would not be able to conduct the audit due in 2023 following a review of their client portfolio. The firm raised no concerns about the audit of the SNP's 2021 accounts, which it had conducted and which gave the bookkeeping a clean bill of health. The SNP said it had approached other firms in late 2022, but found a number of firms were experiencing capacity issues and unable to take on new clients. The search intensified in the new year with a number of firms contacted, but as yet no auditor with the required capacity has been identified. Labour and the Tories have demanded greater transparency from the SNP, saying the failure to be open about its auditors stinks to high heaven. This is from the Herald Scotland of Wednesday the 12th of April 2023 from the Voices section. 
Tighter controls on cattle in Scotland amid bovine tuberculosis fears. This article has been produced by the Herald Scotland Online. Tighter controls are being introduced on cattle being brought into Scotland in a bid to ensure the country remains free of bovine tuberculosis, TB. The Scottish Government announced changes to legislation will come into force from May 18th, which will mean stricter testing of cattle prior to being moved. Additional precautions will also be put in place for animals coming to Scotland from areas with a higher risk of infection, and compensation payments for unclean cattle that have to be slaughtered for TB control purposes are to be reduced, with ministers hoping that this will incentivise farmers to keep herds free of the disease. The changes are being introduced after consultation with Rural Affairs Secretary Mary Gujan saying that they were part of a comprehensive, practical and proportionate programme of measures. Ms Gujan said, although Scotland is officially TB-free, cases do still occur and breakdowns are extremely disruptive, upsetting and distressing for cattle owners. We are committed to maintaining Scotland's low TB infection rates and OTF, officially TB-free, status, which is crucial to the success of our cattle industry. These legislative changes are part of a comprehensive, practical and proportionate programme of measures to minimise the risks from all potential sources of infection and reduce the risk of disease spread as far as possible. Alistair McNabb, Vice President of the National Farmers Union Scotland, NFUS, said, Scottish cattle keepers are proud of Scotland's officially TB-free status and remain committed to keeping TB out of Scotland. NFUS welcomes Scottish Government's commitment to continually reviewing the processes in place to protect Scotland's cattle herd and to make sure they remain fit for purpose. The changes to the pre-movement test requirements and improved clarity around isolation are being introduced following a consultation process and should offer increased confidence to keepers. NFUS urges Scottish cattle keepers to remain aware that the greatest risk of introducing TB into Scotland is from cattle movements and to continue to ensure their sourcing policies will minimise the risk to their own holding and the national herd. This is from the Glasgow Times on Wednesday the 12th of April from the sports section. Dave King rejects £25 million Rangers bid and makes board shares call. This exclusive article is written by Christopher Jack. Dave King has rejected a £25 million bid for his major shareholding in Rangers. And the former chairman has accused the Ibrox board of squandering their advantage over Celtic and undervaluing the club on the back of their recent successes. King pulled out of his agreement with Club 1872, which would have seen the supporter organisation become the largest individual shareholders in RIFC PLC earlier this year, as he labelled the proposal as futile, following a slow take-up to the multi-million pound plan. Just weeks later, American businesswoman Kyle Fox 
confirmed that she had withdrawn her interest in investing at Ibrox after being met with resistance from a number of key shareholders. King confirmed that the bid for his 14.22% stake in Rangers had not been made by Fox as he rejected the chance to cash in and end his financial interest in the club. And he has been left bemused at the recent issuing of shares, 4.2 million of which were allotted in February and a further 7.7 million earlier this month, that he believes has undervalued Rangers. King has been a vocal critic of former chairman Douglas Park before he stepped down from the board last week and has urged successor John Bennett to adopt a fresh approach to put the interests of supporters first. King said, Since 55, the board has squandered the advantage that we worked so hard to achieve. The current 12-point gap between Rangers and Celtic clearly suggests this and has completely lost sight of the biggest stakeholder group in the club. It is the supporters, not the directors, who should be prioritised. Hopefully, the removal of Douglas will allow the board to put supporters first once again. By doing so, the board commit to ensuring there will be no repeat of this season. Like most supporters and many shareholders, I am demoralised by the continuation of the Douglas Park-led board. He was chairman at the time to look after their personal interests ahead of the club. No sooner had the board rejected a fully funded offer of new shares at 40p than they issued substantial shares to themselves at 25p. This is after previously stating that shares would no longer be issued at the low price of 25p. 25p is the price that prevailed before 55, before the Europa League final and before the re-emergence to Champions League football. It massively undervalues our club and our recent achievements. I recently turned down an unconditional cash offer of 40 pence from a group other than Kyle Fox's, so 40 pence is presently a fair price. 25p undervalues the price of the shares by almost 40%, and I wonder how the board would react if supporters asked for a 40% discount on next season's ticket prices as an equivalent. This exclusive article was written by Christopher Jack. This is from the Glasgow Times on Wednesday the 12th of April from the sports section. Ex-Rangers boss Stephen Gerrard details exciting manager opportunity. This article is written by Aidan Smith. Stephen Gerrard has revealed that he has turned down a number of opportunities to get back into management, both at club and international level. The former Rangers boss was sacked by Premier League outfit Aston Villa around November time last season. Since then, Gerrard has been out of work, but he has worked as a pundit during this time. On his situation, Gerrard told The Manager magazine, you have to reset wait and be patient for the fire and the fight to return. I've been offered opportunities to manage at club and international level since I left Villa, including an exciting opportunity in an overseas league, but none have been right for me at this time. Gerard also reflected on his time at Rangers and admits his connection with the club was the perfect relationship. He continued... As soon as I came off the call with Rangers, I knew it was the right club culture for me. I immediately felt wanted 
and I saw the potential for me to have a genuine connection with the supporters. I've always been game for those types of risks and I knew that if I could forge good relationships with the supporters, the players and my coaching team, then we had huge potential to be successful. You don't accomplish anything by yourself, so humility and working with everyone in the club, both on and off the pitch, is incredibly important. I knew that the chairman, Dave King, had my back, that we would work well together and that he would be there to guide me as a young manager should I need it. He fully understood the situation the club was in, but we put in place a plan together, we met regularly and knew there needed to be clarity and alignment from top to bottom, with everybody pulling in the same direction. When you achieve anything though, it's a process, a journey, and no matter what anyone says, it's never about just one individual. I and everyone in my coaching staff played our part in achieving Rangers' 55th title. Understandably, people often fear change, so it's really important to be able to communicate your ideas clearly. During any period of change within football, there are difficult conversations to be had. For example, when you have to tell players they aren't part of the squad moving forward. I then had the challenge of going out and convincing players we targeted that Rangers was the football club for them and that they could improve the team and keep taking the club forward. There were times when I had to take criticism, pressure and responsibility on my own shoulders to protect my staff and my players. That article was written by Aidan Smith. This is from the Glasgow Times on Wednesday the 12th of April. From the sports section. Police respond to abuse of Kevin Clancy after Celtic versus Rangers. This article is written by Rebecca Newlands. Officers have issued a statement after the SFA reported alleged instances of threatening behaviour against Kevin Clancy. The referee's personal and professional contact details were leaked online following a 3-2 win for Celtic against Rangers on Saturday, which he refereed. The Football Association claims it received a series of unacceptable messages over the holiday weekend in relation to Clancy. After contacting the force to deal with the matter, which the SFA dubbed potentially criminal in nature, police have confirmed that they are investigating it. A statement shared on Tuesday reads, We are investigating alleged threatening communications which were reported to us by the SFA today. All reports of this nature are treated with the utmost seriousness and will be investigated thoroughly. We will provide support to those affected as our investigation progresses. After the SFA confirmed it had informed police of the alleged abuse, its chief executive, Ian Maxwell, said on Monday, The nature of the messages goes way beyond criticism of performance and perceived decision-making. Some are potentially criminal in nature and include threats and abuse towards Kevin and his family. We have referred the correspondence to the police and condemned this behaviour in the strongest possible terms as well as the posting of a referee's personal details online, with the sole purpose of causing distress. Football is our national game. It improves and saves lives. 
Without referees, there is no game. And while decisions will always be debated with or without the use of VAR, we cannot allow a situation to develop where a referee's privacy and safety and those of his family are compromised. We all have a responsibility to protect our game and those essential to it. That article was written by Rebecca Newlands. The Herald, Friday the 14th of April 2023. News. Anger as CMAL sends execs on £1,000 a night med conference cruise. This article is by Martin Williams. Scottish Government-owned ship and harbour owner Caledonian Maritime Assets Limited has been condemned for agreeing to send two key figures to a ferry conference cruise junket on the med in the midst of the nation's ferry fiasco. Both CMAL Chief Executive Kevin Hobbs and its Director of Vessels, Jim Anderson, are lined up to head to Barcelona to check in on April 24th for the three-day jaunt at a cost of between £1,800 and £2,400 per person for two nights. A shared cabin costs between £3,000 and £4,000. The Shipax Ferry Conference will be on board cruise Barcelona, one of the largest of its kind that crossed the Mediterranean Sea and a flagship of the Naples-based shipping firm Grimaldi Lines. The conference is due to bring together between 450 and 500 delegates from more than 200 companies and between 50 and 60 ferry operators and promotional material states that it is a guaranteed entertaining and fun event you will remember for a long time. Jim Anderson is due to speak about the fleet renewal programme, while Mr Hobbs is due to take part in a panel debate on short-range operators. It comes amidst a series of breakdowns of ferries owned by CMAL and operated by Scottish Government-owned CalMac, while two long-delayed lifeline ferries being built by sister shipyard firm Ferguson Marine remain incomplete with costs quadrupling. The previous Ferguson Marine owner, tycoon Jim McCall, who rescued the yard when it went bust in 2014, blamed repeated design changes by CMAL, which owns ferries for the issues in building the vessels for operator CalMac, which is also publicly owned. CMAL have blamed the shipyard firm. Yesterday's services on one of Scotland's busiest ferry routes to and from Arran ground to a halt after the sole ferry, 40-year-old MV Isle of Arran, was withdrawn after a leak was found from its exhaust system. It also comes as CMAL has awarded over £220 million in contracts to build four ferries to Turkish shipyard firm Kemmerer Marin Industry, who are one of the 50 paid-for sponsors and exhibitors. They are nightcap sponsors. Ferguson Marine are not represented. Former Justice Secretary, now East Lothian MP and Alaba Party Deputy Leader Kenny McCaskill has attacked the move, saying he was outraged by what he called a junket and lodged a complaint with the Transport Minister. He said, given the total mess, where is the credibility? 
Besides, this isn't about securing work for Ferguson Marine and more like networking with foreign competitors. He told the Transport Minister with delays to the vessels lengthening and indeed their costs rising, I am writing to query why two senior CMAL officials are engaging in what frankly appears to me to be a junket. It is noticeable that Ferguson's are not one of the companies represented at the conference and that raises questions about just what the purpose of the attendance by Kevin Hobbs and Jim Anderson will be. The priority for Scotland must surely be ensuring the renewal of the Calmac fleet and the construction work of the vessels staying in Scotland at Ferguson Yard. The fact that they are not present but other foreign yard operators are gives cause for concern. CMA will be attending the 20th anniversary of the conference which is to feature professional and well-renowned speakers and experts, captivating debates and interactions, unbeatable networking, world-class organisation and service and value for money. With a capacity of more than 2,500 passengers, the floating hotel hosting the conference features 411 air-conditioned ensuite cabins and 70 luxury suites alongside a choice of restaurants and bars, a swimming pool and casino. Prices for delegates to the conference includes a single cabin and a return trip from Barcelona to the Civitaccia region of Rome. The fees for the conference date beer, wine, drinks, a happy hour and nightcaps included, as well as two breakfasts, lunches and dinners. Conference details state to meet and discuss in combination with having a memorable and enjoyable time together with friends and colleagues in the industry is what the Ship Axe Ferry Conference is all about. While being on board a ferry ensures a familiar and close connection between all delegates. Educational and fun. The ex-leader of the SNP group on Inverclyde Council and now Alaba Party General Secretary, Chris McElhenney, said CMAL was not fit for purpose and should be done away with. This is the latest slap in the face by CMAL fat cats to our island communities and to workers on the Clyde, he said. The Auditor General has been scathing in his criticism of Ferguson's top bosses, handing out huge bonuses to themselves. Now CMAL, the government body responsible for bringing global ridicule to Scottish shipbuilding, are often a cruise around the Mediterranean. It is, of course, surprising that anyone would want to listen to CMAL bosses give talks on ferry procurement, so it's more likely their interest will be in lobbying for more work to be sent abroad from CMAL's massive order book. It is time for the Scottish Government to bring together ferry procurement, ferry building and ferry operations into one body. A spokesperson from CMAL said CMAL is at the forefront of ferry decarbonisation research and the Shipax Conference is an opportunity to share this knowledge with our counterparts in the global shipping industry, while also supporting efforts to source second-hand tonnage for the Scottish ferry network. CMAL has a responsibility 
to engage with shipyards globally to ensure it is able to fulfil the delivery of up to 21 vessels in the next 10 years. Last year, it emerged that taxpayer-funded CMAL spent hundreds of pounds more on monthly overseas travel during the pandemic than before COVID hit. CMAL racked up £170,000 in foreign travel over the five years to 2022. Official figures reveal that CMAL was spending nearly £300 a month more on overseas travel during the pandemic than in the five years before the virus hit. It was spending an average of £2,836.06 a month over six months during the COVID pandemic in 2020 and 2021, having previously forked out £2,547.22 a month in the five years before the virus restrictions. On Thursday, one of CalMac's oldest vessels, MV Isle of Arran, had to be withdrawn from services after a leak was found from her exhaust system in the engine room. CalMac has told users that a repair is required for safety reasons and is the latest in a series of breakdowns in recent weeks. The ferry operator has said crew were attempting a repair and external contractors are being mobilised to support. Users were asked to detour onto the route to Lochranza on Arran to Claoneg, a hamlet on the east coast of the Kintyre Peninsula in western Scotland as an alternative. By road, that means those travelling from Ardrossan going on a 125-mile detour to get to and from Cloyneg, a journey that would take around three hours. Their Drossen to Brodick ferry crossing usually takes just 35 minutes. Buses were laid on at 3.30pm to take people from Ardrossen to Cloyneg to provide a connection to Arran for foot passengers. Buses are also to leave Brodick at 6pm for Lochranza to provide a connection to the mainland for foot passengers. There is to be a connecting bus from Cleonig to Ardrossan. But Calmac warned that buses were severely limited. The 40-year-old Isle of Arran had been taken off its normal Ardrossan to Campbelltown service to stand in on Arran for other ferries that had been sidelined for weeks due to problems found during an annual overhaul. It comes after CalMac's biggest vessel, MV Loch Seaforth, which operates to and from Stornoway on the Isle of Lewis, returned to action on Wednesday evening after being sidelined for three days, suffering engine issues on Monday evening. The 31-year-old MV Loch Tarbert, 32-year-old MV Loch Fine, were added to the roster of vessels needing repairs over Easter Sunday and Monday, causing further headaches for the Scottish Government-owned ferry operator. They have returned to service. Three more of CalMax fleet, MV Caledonian Isles, MV Hebridean Isles and MV Clansman, have remained out of action since the summer timetable began on April the 1st, having spent weeks on the sidelines for repairs after problems discovered after overhauls. MV Isle of Arran had been serving Arran for weeks on its own 
because of the issues with Caledonian Isles and MV Hebridean Isles, cutting the number of available vehicle spaces to about half. This article is by Martin Williams. The Herald, Friday the 14th of April 2023, News. Anne Perry, crime writer who, as a teen, killed friend's mum. This article is by Russell Ledbetter. Crime author Anne Perry, who was jailed as a teenager for murdering her friend's mother, has died at the age of 84, her agent has confirmed. The writer, who was famed for her Pitt and Monk detective novel series, alongside her dark past that was turned into the Oscar-nominated Peter Jackson film, Heavenly Creatures, died on Monday in Los Angeles, where she had been living. Previously, she lived in Scotland. In 1954, at the age of 15, Perry, who was born Juliet Hulm, was convicted along with her friend Pauline Parker of murder. The pair had bludgeoned Parker's mother to death with a brick in a stocking in Christchurch, New Zealand, becoming two of the country's most notorious killers. The events would later be the inspiration behind Jackson's 1994 Psychological drama starring Kate Winslet in a breakout role and Melanie Linsky and received an Academy Award nomination for screenplay writing. As both Perry and Parker were under 18 at the time of the killing, neither could be sentenced to death and they were instead subject to detention during Her Majesty's pleasure, according to the New Zealand government website. After serving a five-year prison sentence, Perry was released and changed her name, returning to the UK and later beginning her writing career. Perry successfully rebuilt her life and she would become one of Britain's wealthiest and most successful authors. In the early 1990s, she settled in a striking four-bedroom property on the outskirts of the peaceful Easter Ross fishing village of Port Mahomac. But in 1994, upon the release of the film, Perry was targeted there by tabloid journalists. The sequestered and secluded world she had built for herself, her family and extended family of close friends fell apart. In March 2002, Perry, then aged 63, was interviewed at her home by the Herald. The interviewer observed that for almost half a century she had lived with the knowledge that she was never going to escape the shackles of her past. Perry asked wearily, Do you think the day will ever come when I am judged for my work alone, when newspapers will want to write about me simply because I have written all these books people want to buy and love reading? Will I ever be judged for what I am and not for what I was? Of the murder itself, she said, it was all such a long time ago. Nations have fallen since I was a 15-year-old girl. She said she could not understand why people would wish to be spectators at the tragedy of others. I have no interest in gazing on other people's misery. When asked, do you remember? She replied, of course I don't remember anything about it. 
because I was so very ill at the time. Why would I choose to remember? Perry was a sickly child who suffered from chest trouble and at the time of the killing was being treated experimentally with drugs which have since been removed from the market. In a 1997 interview, she said her time in prison had been unimaginably awful. It was just ghastly. I didn't think anyone cared. A statement from Key Agency today said Anne was a loyal and loving friend and her writing was driven by her fierce commitment to raising awareness around social injustice. Many people have been moved by her empathy for people backed into impossible situations or overwhelmed by the difficulties of life. Her characters inspired much love among her fans and comforted many readers who were going through tough times themselves. Perry's writing career began with the publishing of The Cater Street Hangman in 1979, the first in a series of books featuring Victorian policeman Thomas Pitt and his wife Charlotte. She had this month released another novel in the sequence called The Fourth Enemy and in 2017 released 21 Days, which follows the couple's son, Daniel. Perry's second series of crime novels revolve around private detective William Monk and the volatile nurse Hester Latterly. In 2000, she won the Edgar Award, which celebrates mystery novel writers with Heroes, a short story about a murder that takes place in the trenches during the First World War. Prior to her death, she had been working on more titles in both the Pitt and Monk series, and her works have regularly appeared on the New York Times bestseller list. Perry was born in Blackheath, London in October 1938 and moved first to the Bahamas at the age of eight before originally settling in New Zealand. She said on her website that she had been fostered as a child due to illness and missed a lot of school as a result. Perry, who would return to the UK when she was in her 20s, to live in Hexham, Northumberland, was a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. She would also publish the mystical novels Come Amagerdon and Tathia. Perry, who has also lived in Southern California, is survived by her brother, Dr. Jonathan Holm, and his family. This article is by Russell Ledbetter. The Herald on the 14th of April and the Voices section. They died doing their job, so why won't the government recognise them? By Mark Smith. Philip Hunt tells me about his mum. Her life was never the same after it happened, he says. She was broken. Philip struggled too. He was 22 at the time, which means 40 years of trying to get recognition for his father. The message from the UK government has always been the same. No. Philip's dad was a policeman, Detective Sergeant Ross Hunt. You may have heard of the case. On June 5th, 1983, in Lark Hall, DS Hunt was stabbed to death while investigating an assault. He was supposed to be going off duty, but thought his colleagues might need help. 
He was 56 and a few months away from retiring. There's another case we should talk about. PC George Taylor, a bit earlier, November 30th, 1976. But it was a big deal at the time because it involved an escape by two men from the state hospital at Carstairs. PC Taylor came across the men, became involved in a violent struggle with them, and was hacked to death with an axe. In the words of his chief constable, he displayed exceptional courage in attempting to overpower two armed and dangerous men. But, again, as with Ross Hunt, there has been no official recognition. The UK government says there's nothing it can do. Civilian gallantry honours, they say, can only be awarded if the incident took place in the last five years. This is what campaigner George Barnsley, who's taken up the cases of the two policemen, was told when he had a meeting the other day with the Cabinet Officer, Minister Johnny Mercer. It's the law. Five years. That's that. No award, no recognition. Except that Mr Barnsley, who's a former policeman himself, and the families aren't accepting it. The five-year law, they say, is nothing of the sort. It's a rule that was first applied to soldiers after the Second World War, but does not specifically apply to civilian workers. Mr Barnsley also told the minister there's nothing to stop the government ordering a full review of the rules. All it needs is the will to do it. There is possibly some hope that action will be taken. I spoke to the Cabinet Office about the whole affair, and they pointed out that Mr Mercer has said he wants to get the situation on awards sorted out this year, which sounds good, and I hope he does. But it's fair to say Mr Barnsley and the families are frustrated by the lack of action. So there are several things that need to happen now, the first of which is a review of the rules. Mr Barnsley quite rightly makes the point that if we can look back at the minor strike or the troubles in Northern Ireland and review or quash convictions, surely a similar review could be applied to the bravery of police officers killed while doing their job. As part of the review, the government should also consider the introduction of a civilian version of the Elizabeth Cross, which was awarded to the next of kin of armed forces personnel killed on operations. It's a mark of national recognition of the service and loss, but remarkably there is no equivalent for police officers. It's something that could be fixed pretty quickly. The introduction of such an honour, combined with a review of the rules to permit historical awards for exceptional bravery, would ensure that the families of every police officer who dies on duty knows their service was valued. But it would also allow DS Hunt and PC Taylor to finally get the posthumous posthumous recognition they deserve. It may be that Mr Mercer and the UK government will do what they say they would and get the situation sorted this year, although it would seem they are standing firm for now on the specific issue of awards from DS Hunt and PC Taylor. Perhaps they think it will be too complicated or too expensive, but it shouldn't be. This isn't ancient history. We know the details. We know their stories. We can see their courage. But if the government is still having doubts, I would urge them to speak to DS Hunt's son, Philip, as well as get the other relatives. Philip says that all the families have ever got from the government is go away. But all he wants is recognition for his father. And he says he won't give up until he gets it. That was by Mark Smith.
From the Herald, Monday, 17th of April, 2023. Sports section. Mick Kennedy quit Starville just months after huge Scottish Cup shock by Ewan Payton, sports writer. Mick Kennedy has resigned as manager of Darville. It comes just a few months after he led the former junior side to arguably the biggest Scottish Cup shock of all time. In January, Darville knocked Aberdeen out of the competition with a 1-0 win. That result really did spell the beginning of the end of Jim Goodwin at Pedodrie, as Jordan Kirkpatrick's strike in Ayrshire sealed progression to the fourth round of the Cup for Darville. While the West of Scotland Premier side then started to dream of what might follow a home tie against Falkirk in the next round proved to be a step too far. John McGlynn's side steamrolled Darville to book their quarter-final spot against Ayr, which they subsequently won. Darville won their league last season, but lost out to Eastside Trennant in the playoffs to reach the Lowland League. This season, it's not looking so good for them. They currently sit second with Beath Junior six points clear and with a game in hand, so they're likely to lift the title. Kennedy has now decided to call time on his four-year stint at the Tier 6 outfit. Chairman John Gall said, Michael has been an integral part of everything at this club throughout his tenure and has poured more than just managerial duties into the mix. It's been an absolute joy to work alongside him over the last four seasons, with memories that will last a lifetime, and for that I'll always be proud to call Michael a friend. The club will always be the main focus for me, and it saddens me that this is the end of the journey. Michael has been instrumental in leaving us with good solid foundations, both in terms of infrastructure and playing squad, that will continue to thrive well beyond his departure. I'd like to thank Michael for his service and utmost professionalism showing during his time. He'll always be a legend, Dune Nebre, and wish him well for whatever the future may hold. That article was by Ewan Payton. From the Herald, Monday, 17th of April, 2023. Sports section. Pastime of the pandemic sent into a tailspin. By Nick Roger, golf correspondent. Every cloud has a silver lining. In those dark days of COVID, when all sorts of activities were placed under house arrest, the rush of people towards golf was akin to the scenes you would see in a nature documentary when a wildebeest gets spooked by a lurking lion and the entire herd goes on a thunderous stampede. In this great surge of interest, the royal and ancient game got a welcome shot in the arm. Tea time sheets were overflowing with bookings and membership figures rocketed like something from Cape Canaveral as all and sundry found physical and mental sanctuary on the fairways amid the stifling restrictions. Golf became the pastime of the pandemic. For many clubs it was boom time, but a couple of years on, are we heading for the subsequent bust? Well, statistics gathered today by Kevin Fish, that well-kent authority on golf club management who runs a North Berwick-based contemporary club leadership, suggests that membership resignation rates could be returning to pre-COVID levels. April is a big month for golf, said Fish, of that annual enthusiasm that bursts out like the spring daffodils. The Masters always energises people to dust off the clubs again. But for the boards of our many private members' golf clubs, it's also the month when they find out how many of their members have decided 
to renew their vows for another year. We regularly survey club leaders and our most recent findings show that the average resignation rate is 6%. This is back to the level golf was experiencing before the pandemic struck. While it is not the mass exodus many feared this year, it's still a return to the familiar slippery slope of golf has been on since the turn of the century. Golf has been one of the most volatile industries during the lockdown years. The much-needed government intervention of furlough payments placed many struggling clubs into the recovery position until the un unexpected boom arrived. For three years, golf clubs have never been busier, but the easing of lockdown, coupled with the severe economic challenges of recent months, has sent club boards into a tailspin, wondering what increase in subscription fees could be charged this year. We've never seen more volatility in member subscription rates, with the increases ranging from zero right up to 25%. Fish, a former club development manager with the amateur governing body, Scottish Golf, is now intrigued to see what will happen next. Has golf done enough to capitalise on the influx of newcomers while retaining those who are giving the game another chance? We know that marrying golfers to a club is easier when they're in their 40s and 50s, he added. That age group is now also more likely to be working from home, or even part of the mass resignation wave we've learned about. That is the target-rich environment I would focus a club's attention on while trying to provide such a level of belonging that members genuinely feel the same way towards their golf club that they feel about their broadband. They simply can't live without it. Amid the widespread ravages of COVID, the unlikely fill-up of golf was afforded uh, made members appreciate what they have in the club environment. They are custodians of something that should be cherished after all. The question Fish now asks is this, is it a decline we've seen since the year 2000 terminal or has lockdown done enough to shock clubs into running their affairs in a more business-like manner? Our latest survey reveals that almost one third of clubs are concerned about their long-term future beyond 2028. Our data also shows that the gap between the large and small clubs is getting bigger, as evidenced by resignation rates, subscription revenue, and this year in particular, the levels of salary increases given to secure the best staff. I would say that the old adage about the clubs being not-for-profit is gradually being consigned to the dustbin. Whether it is building a reserve to see them through the next unforeseen calamity or simply replacing the assets they are responsible for, when members embrace the fact that they are owners of their clubs, not customers, they are more likely to succeed and thrive while making their club attractive to the next generation, not just the last one. That article was by Nick Roger. From the Herald, Sunday 16th of April 2023. Sports section. Benefits clear to see after Pedro Martinez Losa finally shuffles the deck. By Alan Campbell, women's football writer. Tuesday night's 4-0 win over Costa Rica was my last Scotland game in a working capacity. To show their appreciation, the footballing gods arranged for a downpour of biblical proportions, which meant those of us leaving Hamden had to take care not to be drowned in the ensuing floods. While Plan A had been to bow out at this summer's World Cup, the Republic of Ireland put ped to that, 
what had initially appeared to be little more than a low-key friendly against Costa Rica proved to be rather bitter. Added to the 1-0 win over Australia four days earlier, there were finally signs that Pedro Martinez Losa's side could be heading in an upward trajectory. It's no coincidence that the most encouraging double-header of the Spaniards' tenure coincided with the squad being freshened significantly. The squad had been so predictable for so long that any upheaval was likely to be a positive. Having proved she could adapt to this level against Australia, 17-year-old Emma Watson took her leap further in her first appearance at Hamden. The score twice was a remarkable achievement for the Brighton High School pupil, who will soon sit the first of her four hires. Watson goes to the SFA Performance School on Mondays, Tuesdays and Fridays, while also being full-time with Rangers. She credits training with boys for her first four years at Brighton, in addition to the coach at the school, Keith Wright, as being significant factors in her development. Watson, who was rumoured to be interesting Manchester United, even before her outstanding Hamden performance, is remarkably mature and grounded for her age. She only turned 17 in January, and if she does move to United in the summer, she'll be following in the footsteps of Kim Little, Caroline Weir and Erin Cuthbert, all midfielders who moved to top English clubs at similar ages. The challenge now is to introduce a robust youth development pathway, which can produce a steady stream of better quality players, not just for the senior team, but the age group ones as well. In that respect, it is very encouraging to hear that Mick McArdle, the SFA's first ever women's performance manager, has wasted no time in making his presence felt and is already introducing changes. The most significant Scottish women's Premier League game of the season so far will be the second of a double header at Peters Hill Park today. Celtic manager Fran Alonso concedes the contest against Glasgow City is a must win for his side. A draw is not enough. So we're going to try and do what we did to Rangers, Alonso said. They were unbeaten in the league for a year and a half and we were the first team to beat them. With eight points already separating the top two sides, a deficit of 11 would effectively end Celtic's hopes of winning a first league title. They go into today's game without the influential Olivia Chance, who was injured playing for New Zealand against Iceland a week last Friday. The better news for Celtic is that Sherry Menglu is expected to play despite missing out on what could have been a debut cap against either Switzerland or Spain. Lou was carrying a light injury from the last game against Partick Thistle, but wasn't able to train the first few days with China, but did manage the last few days, Alonso said. Like the other two title contenders, Glasgow City had multiple players away on international duty, but head coach Leanne Ross, who was also involved in the two Scotland games, says all are available today. City beat Celtic in both earlier league games, but Ross admitted, if we're honest, these could have gone either way. There's nothing between the top three teams, and that's testament to the work that all the clubs are doing. Nevertheless, City have taken eight points from a possible 12 against their title rivals. Celtic, five from 15, and Rangers, just four from 15. 
That largely explains City's healthy points advantage. If they can avoid defeat today and again on Wednesday against Rangers, regaining the title will look very likely. There will unusually be two games involving Scottish Women's Premier League clubs on Saturday. The opener with a 12.30 kickoff is the first ever Scottish Cup semi-final at Hamden between Rangers and Motherwell. That's followed at 7.45 by Hibernian against Hearts at Easter Road. The league game will be live on Sky Sports. But unlike the two previous derbies, the teams will not be playing for the Capital Cup and fans will have to pay to get in. That article was by Alan Campbell. From the Herald, Tuesday the 18th of April 2023, from the Opinion section. Highly protected marine areas are a disastrous child of SNP Green loving, by Brian Wilson. There is one beneficial outcome from the furore over highly protected marine areas, the draconian plan which has emerged from the SNP Green Lovin. It is a return of the protest song, which has been too long in Scottish abeyance. The band Skippinish has produced a powerful angry song, The Clearances Again, which drives home both the gross injustice of what is being proposed and also a fierce willingness to resist it. Last week, the video reached number five in the UK charts. A song can be more powerful than words alone in making a political point, whether with a large or small p. My guess is that SNP politicians in the islands who have kept their heads down until the storm passes will now be in more fear of the song than of anything said in Holyrood. Normally, I don't like latter-day clearance metaphors, which almost invariably trivialise by comparison the historic cruelty of the real thing. It is a measure of how the current proposals are viewed in coastal communities that, in this context, the word does not seem excessive. In half a century as journalist and politician dealing with West Highland and Island affairs, I have never observed such an uprising of spontaneous fury against any measure. There is an instinctive feeling that this really is a frontier too far. Beyond the specifics of an extremist policy, it crystallises awareness of how these places are having the life drained out of them by arrogant remote government. On Saturday, a monument was dedicated at Loch Boysdale to commemorate the 300 islanders who left from South Uist and Barra on board the SS Marloch in 1923, an iconic event in the 20th century history of these islands. It was the start of an emigration wave that took thousands from the Hebrides to Canada and Australia in search of new lives. A hundred years ago, opponents of emigration maintained that not a single man, woman or child should have to leave if the land was broken up and opportunities created for people to live and work in their homeland. The emigrant ships took with them not only the lifeblood of communities, but also their language and culture. Saturday's speeches drew direct comparison with what is threatened through HPMAs. How can this happen a century later? Yet nobody thought it excessive to make that link. The fear of families forced to leave because their means of livelihood are in the process of being obliterated is all too tangible. It's written down in yellow and green. The accompanying backdrop inevitably involves ferries. I appreciate the appetite for reading about broken down or unbuilt Calmac ferries may have its limits, so I won't labour the point. 
but please understand that this has long since passed from inconvenience to crisis, and nowhere more so as it happens than in Uist. Every business and associated job in these islands depends one way or another on communications, and these have to an extraordinary degree disintegrated. From day to day there is no certainty about whether the ferries will sail, or if they do, between which two points. It is nigh well impossible for businesses to operate in that environment. The Scottish Government is deeply culpable for refusing to take this crisis seriously when its scale first became apparent, maybe two years ago. Instead of chartering to augment the fleet, their response was to kick the can down the road until the problem would go away. Instead, it gets worse and worse. Then throw in the HPMA bombshell for good measure. At its heart is a fundamental contempt for the idea that those with the strongest vested interest in protecting their own marine environment are the people who depend upon it for their livelihoods. That is why for decades the fishing industry in the Western Isles and elsewhere have been calling for management to be devolved to local or regional levels. Over the past century, these places have seen fishing stock wiped out by the predations of more powerful fleets from elsewhere, mainly other parts of Scotland where fishing is an entirely different scale of capital-intensive business. The result is that the inshore fishing industry is now based almost entirely on shellfish of very high quality. It is in wholly in its own interest to protect stock and the hundreds of jobs that go with them by operating in a sustainable manner. Instead of that, the heavy hand of Edinburgh is threatening that the grounds in which they operate will be closed to all forms of fishing and all other economic activity. It is not only madness, but grossly disrespectful. History shows that new environmental designations invariably follow the pattern of where previous ones already exist. So while the at least 10% of Scottish inshore waters has not yet been defined by lines on the map, nobody is in any doubt about where they will end up. As the Scottish Government consultation paper says, the approach taken arises through the Butte House Agreement between SNP and Greens, which, among much else coming down the tracks, committed to a world-leading suite of eight highly protected marine areas covering at least 10% of our seas. Ah, world-leading again. That is an arbitrary figure which of itself requires scientific justification before site identification even arises. But if someone in Edinburgh is sitting with an at least 10% target, there is not the slightest doubt where his or her pen will busy itself first, that is, on waters which currently sustain world-leading shellfish businesses. The whole approach is grossly misconceived by politicians and quangos who regard Scotland's periphery as colonial outposts which need to be managed from the centre. The idea of empowering communities and listening to the people who will be affected before embarking on grandly named agreements seems never to occur. This time, the motley crew who run Scotland are not only up against a lot of angry, fearful people, they are also fighting the power of a song, and I hope it's the first of many. This article was by Brian Wilson. From the Herald, Tuesday the 18th of April 2023, from the Opinion section. Keir Starmer is standing in the way of Anna Sarwa defeating SNP, by Neil Mackay. The SNP is a basket case. This we know. Legal matters aside, 
Scotland's national conversation must move forward, beyond the desire to point and laugh or stare in horror at the party's self-inflicted ruin. The fate of Scotland demands that we turn our attention to the future, and who wields power in this country. The fortunes of one terminally rotten party are meaningless compared to the fate of a nation locked in the embrace of a ruined government. Nationalists once spent every waking hour declaring Indy is coming. The SNP was always somewhat cult-like, so inevitably, like those sects dreaming of end times, the promised land never materialised. But cult leaders are rather good at revising their calendars. The rapture may have been due last Thursday lunchtime, but when that date comes and goes, cult studies just kick the timing forward a few years, so the suckers carry on believing, and carry on believing could be the title of the SNP's biopic. The prophets of nationalism still stand on the windswept hills of their imaginations, shouting at the heavens that independence approacheth. But who believes that any more, except the serially deluded ultra-partisan? Analysis of what all this means is fairly weak in the media. The commentariat is locked in a clickbait cycle of who can slag off the SNP more. It's an arms race to see what new sneer can be hurled. Great, I get it. Knock yourselves out. But it takes us nowhere. The question we should be asking isn't what new word can I find in my thesaurus to insult the SNP, but what's next for Scotland? Can the SNP hold on to power? Can Labour overtake them? These are the issues. The answers lie in that large swathe of the electorate known as the Scottish left. Labour lost Scotland's left after the Iraq war. Voters migrated to the SNP, giving Alex Salmond his first government. Today, though, the left has started moving away from the SNP. As the Lord of Polling, John Curtis, says, it's Labour who have primarily profited from the fall in SNP support among Yes supporters. Around 18% of Yes supporters would now vote Labour. So left-wing soft Yeses are returning to their former home. Currently, the shift isn't enough to finish the SNP, but it's enough to terrorise the party. The heart of the conundrum is this. Will enough lefty soft yeses park support of the independents to vote Labour at the next general election to kick the Conservatives out? However, this matter isn't easily resolvable. Psychotherapists often talk about the agony of the double bind, which is what the soft yes Scotland left now faces. A double bind occurs when someone is faced with two psychologically conflicting demands. Both needs resolved. However, successfully resolving one challenge causes all hopes of the other to fail. In other words, if I do X, then I must forget about Y, even though I really want Y to happen. But if I do Y, then all hopes of X end, even though I also really want X to happen. Here sits the soft yes Scottish lefty. They want independence, but they also want Conservatives beaten. If they back the SNP, they shore up hopes of independence. However, they also know there's little chance of independence happening, and that voting SNP could prevent Labour ending Conservative rule. Alternatively, if they vote Labour, they'll probably get the Tories out, but they'll damage independence. Psychologically, that's difficult to metabolise. 
Brexit complicates matters. Keir Starmer's Brexit embrace revolts many of those soft yes Scottish lefties. Which will they prefer? The cup of vomit that must be drunk by voting for a Brexit-supporting Starmer to finish Tory rule? Or the cup of vomit that must be drunk if they vote for the SNP and potentially return Conservatives to power, despite hopes of independence at an all-time low? This puts terrible weight on Anna Salwa. Can he find a route through this minefield, charting a course different enough to Starmer's unappetising proposition? He must, if he is to find sufficient space for soft yes Scottish lefties to hold their noses and vote for him. Labour once again has a viable potential First Minister in Sawa, though that's mostly down to the SNP's self-cannibalisation. The drag on Sarwa is Starmer. Sarwa must be utterly distort when someone like John McTernan, Tony Blair's former political adviser, says Thatcherites are safe to come home to the Labour Party, thanks to Starmer. The push-pull factors on the soft-yes Scottish left when it comes to the SNP and Labour are too entangled to make their likely destination easy to call. But this is sure. Starmer may believe his path to power lies through Scotland, but he's putting up every roadblock imaginable to prevent Sawa from seeing the inside of Butte House. Clearly, there's another element to Scotland's left-wing equation, the Greens. Let's safely assume few lefties who move from Labour to the SNP are disposed to give their vote to uh, Salmon's Alaba. But might they drift greenwards? There's a chance, of course. Most lefties care about the environment and will have sympathy for a lot of green positions. But the Greens are still too small. They are smeared with the ordure of the SNP. More importantly, voting green will do little to get the Tories out, especially if it's becoming an accepted political truth that independence is off the cards for many years to come. Evidently, the new First Minister, Hamza Yousaf, could try to keep the left on board. However, he has more woes to contend with than the political truism that split parties don't attract voters. His biggest concern is the fundamental wound that was opened up by the leadership contest. It showed the Scottish left that the SNP was anything but left. Yes, Youssef may indeed be progressive. There's no cause to doubt him. But behind him, there's a party filled with supporters of Kate Forbes and Ash Regan. He won by a pretty slim margin. That was the hemorrhage point for the left. They saw what the party really was, felt conned and began to look elsewhere. Now they are homeless, and whoever can offer them shelter will find power is their reward. That article was by Neil Mackay. That concludes this week's edition of the Herald Scotland podcast. Please remember to subscribe to our channels at Food Review. Tell your friends about our service. 